Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am or streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Today on the show, we are joined by a PhD student, or actually master's combined PhD student, (laughs) Capella Moira um, from Monash University. Capella is conducting graduate level research on the treatment of eating disorders and recovery experiences. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, just to start off, Capella, could you just give us a bit of an outline on the various types of eating disorders out there? Um, Yeah, sure. Um, There are three main ones that uh, most people know about. uh, Anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, um, which has only recently been added to uh, the DSM, which is what used to diagnose um, most mental health disorders. Um, Anorexia nervosa is divided into two subtypes, um, uh, restricting and binge purging type. And these all mainly have to do with uh, how people relate to uh, food and their body and how they then um, control it going into or out of their body is a good way to think of it. Then there's a couple of other associated disorders, including pica, rumination disorder, um, avoidant and restrictive Food intake disorder, these are things that you usually see in children, but can also be diagnosed in adults. Um, Then there's also um, other specified eating disorder, which catches disorders that don't neatly fit into the diagnostic criteria and might have previously fit under the big umbrella term of eating disorder not otherwise specified. Mm -hmm. So, for example, that could be um, anorexia that has symptoms of bulimia is a good way to think of it. Um, There's been a study that's found that there is a moderate diagnostic crossover between eating disorder diagnoses. So that means that there's a person with one eating disorder may progress or crossover to a diagnosis with the passage of time. So often the movement is from a disorder with a, a binge eating element Uh, So from anorexia to bulimia or bulimia to binge eating disorder. And what this demonstrates is that there's a degree of fluidity in the diagnoses and a person may end up having a number of diagnoses across their time with an eating disorder. Mm, Thank you for that. Yeah, um, Yeah, I guess eating disorders is a lot more broader than I thought it was. I mean... You know, in the public eye, I guess you only ever hear about specific types, but what you've just explained to us now illustrates that there's a lot more to eating disorders than what we know yeah, in the public re- eye. there really is. There's quite a bit to them, um, and they're really quite complex and divergent and move all over the place. Mm. All right. Capella, could you please tell us about what the different therapy options are? What, what's available to those who have an eating disorder? Well, it really depends on kind of the level of care that's needed. So like how severe the eating disorder is. Um, It can be treated by a coordinated treatment team involving a GP or a psychologist and a dietitian and possibly a psychiatrist if it isn't terribly severe. 
And that can involve a number of therapeutic models, um, such as enhanced cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, and family-based therapy, which have all been certified by the major psychology governing bodies as being appropriate for treating eating disorders. Um, but treatment can also involve elements of dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness, and even psychodynamic approaches. Um, but then if an increased level of care is needed, um, inpatient and outpatient programs are available at a number of hospitals, both public and private, and those are in all the major cities in Australia. And inpatient is usually used when a person needs more ongoing support to manage the mental stress of the eating disorder. Um, also, a also is used when a person's weight is medically compromised and they can't really handle living um, in their home for a while. And this will usually involve attending therapy groups and one-on-one uh, -on -one therapy, and then that will involve learning and relearning new skills. The outpatient and day programs are pretty much the same thing, except the person gets to live at home. Yeah, and I think it's definitely important that there are like therapy options out there for people and that people know that they're not alone if they're struggling. Um, because mm. a lot of people do suffer from an eating disorder, uh, do you know what the mortality rate for people who suffer from them and how does it differ to other forms of mental illness? Mm, yes, this is a really interesting one. Um, so to understand mortality, um, we first need to understand prevalence. Um, so prevalence is the total number of cases in a population. And people with eating disorders really make up a small portion of our, of our population, because meaning they have a really low prevalence. Um, so respectively for anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, um, they, have a one, they make up 1.9%, 2.9%, and 2.9% of our population. Um, Those numbers there, can I ask Capella, mm. are they people that meet? like a, a diagnosis yep. of so, those disorders? Yeah, this is yep. a real. This is going to be a really strict cr criteria. So mm -hmm. this these studies tend to base on very strict diagnostic criteria. When the um, diagnostic criteria expanded out, then it, it does make up more of the population, but it's still quite a small portion of the population. Yeah. It can expand out to be even further, depending on um, if you're counting people who just have disordered eating patterns. But if we're going by really strict diagnostic criteria, then it does still make up quite a small portion of the population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at mortality rate, which is measured using a different um, metric called the standardized mortality rate, which is best explained as the um, rates of death observed compared with the rates of death expected, which is a yeah. kind of a bit morbid. Um, yeah. So with if you compare those, again, for very strict diagnoses, um, you're looking at people, you're looking at a rate of 58 which is just, it's not really a percentage, it's just a 5.8 for anorexia nervosa, 1.93 for bulimia, and 1.92 for EDNOS, which is when they were still using that as a diagnostic criteria. And if you compare this to um, schizophrenia, the standardized mortality rate is 2.5, and for bipolar it's 2.1. So what we're seeing is that these are 
um, for anorexia, it's quite a bit higher than mm. um, for schizophrenia and bipolar. And for bulimia and EDNOS, it's comparable. And So is the difference there is that for people who perhaps have a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia that they are completing suicide and that's what's causing the mortality whereas for the eating disorders you know especially for anorexia nervosa they've got the shutting down of their I guess Mm. their body which causes Mm. them to it's it's not as clear um so I feel like I'm simplifying it yeah yeah (laughs) so the reasons for mortality in schizophrenia and um and bipolar can again be multiple reasons it doesn't just have to be due to suicide mm. uh, suicide is a really high risk among people with eating disorders so they can they are at high risk um it is especially they're especially risk at risk for suicide immediately after discharge from the hospital but um they are also at risk as you say for complications relating to the disorder mm-hmm. um but I'm not sure what the reasons for death are in relation to schizophrenia and bipolar. Mm. I hadn't read that particular research, but I imagine some of those also have to do with just um, complications relating to their medication regimes because yeah. their medication can really exhaust their bodies. Yeah. Um, I guess what the takeaway message from this is that um, it's very important is that the mortality is very high compared to the actual proportion that these people make up of the population. We have a very small number of people with eating disorders in the population, but their mortality is really high compared mm-hmm. to what they make up. And it's very interesting to find, to, it would be very interesting to find out why that's happening and how we can fix that, because it's very concerning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Capella, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, why do you feel the prevalence of eating disorders has increased over the last few years? Well, interestingly, I don't think that it actually has. So epidemiologists, when they measure um, the increase of anything in a population, they actually measure incidence, which is the number of new cases per year. And um, I guess when they've looked at the incidence over the past couple decades, they've looked over the 1970s and 80s, and there was an increase through the 1970s and 80s, and that kind of leveled off through the 90s and through to now. So it's been relatively stable, probably with some minor peaks and troughs. Um, it's possible for why it seems like it has been. there's been an increase um, in incidence and Some possible explanations might be that there's been some changing diagnostic criteria, which which has shown that there um, might be more people who fit into the current diagnostic criteria. Um, There's probably more an increased visibility. So we're actually seeing more people um, through media stories that are making them more available to us. there's also been more in vi- more visibility through the pro-Anna and pro-Mia movements, mm. which made mm. um, eating disorders seem like a lifestyle that was uh, livable. So can you just clarify for our mm. listeners what pro-Anna and pro-Mia actually mean? So pro-Anna and pro-Mia are pro-anorexia and pro-bulimia. And these are a movement that kind of started in the 2000s relating to um, people's ability to live healthily, which is somewhat questionable, um, with an eating disorder, and it characterized an eating disorder as a lifestyle and a choice uh, Mm -hmm. rather than um, a disorder. 
and um, they they were um, in the news a lot. So mm-hmm. they're off, these movements are often online through blogs and posting on messaging boards and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. So then there's also things like exercise culture, which blurs the lines around what is and is not um, healthy eating. And then I think there's also been a general and slow, slow reduction of the stigma surrounding mental health that allows people to talk about their disorders. So people may actually know people who have an eating disorder now, whereas 20 years ago, you just would not have known. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that social media and that has played a part in um, addressing kind of eating disorders in general? Um, I think that's a bit hard to say because social media makes it in some ways very easy for people to share their eating disorder eating disordered behavior. So there is a negative side. There's a very strong pro-Anna, pro-Mia movement on all social media platforms. But then there's also very strong recovery movements on uh, Tumblr, Twitter, all of them. So mm-hmm. it helps with recovery and, and it also helps with the eating disorder. I think that's always going to be the case. Yeah. By viewing the eating disorders, eating disorders as an individual medical problem, is it possible that we run the risk of ignoring uh, the societal factors that are involved? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question because I think, um, I guess individually we do. Um, mm-hmm. Individuals, or I guess individuals can risk that because they would make the risk, they would run the risk of... Um, ignoring it if they were focusing on a biomedical approach too much. Um, But I know that there are plenty of individual practitioners who work, who are acutely aware of the uh, societal pressures that are involved in an eating disorder. But I think where it becomes more involved is where it's at a um, organizational level and where the organizations who are treating a um, an eating disorder aren't aware of how the eating disorder, the group of people that they're treating, um, aren't aware of it, and then they aren't um, helping mm-hmm. from the societal and the cultural. Um, they aren't treating it from a societal and a, and a cultural perspective. Sorry, I think I lost myself for a second. Yeah, there. <laughs> My so brain good. just turned off. <laughs> so good. Um, Capella, so your research is... It draws on the recovery model. Yep. Um, but we also know that the biomedical model also exists in mental health care. Can you, um, I guess, briefly illustrate the differences between those two approaches? Yeah, that's that's a um, that's a good one. So the biomedical approach is pretty simply put: is um, it looks at mental health dis- as mental disorders as they can be understood and treated by medical science. So the disorders are approached from their physical, neurological, and biochemical origins as much as possible, and treatment is focused on symptom reduction and cessation. Whereas the recovery models originate from early alcohol and addictions um, treatment models that later evolve to encompass chronic psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia. And then in recovery model um, treatment, the focus has shifted towards becoming well, um, which can include cessation of symptoms, but there is also an an acknowledgement that symptoms may never actually completely abate. 
and instead well-being and recovery take on personal meaning so each person's recovery becomes a journey rather than a destination and there is emphasis on discovering an identity separate from their illness and on participating in a life worth living whatever mm. that means to each individual so quality of life whatever that means to that particular person mm. as opposed to just living um, symptom free mm -hmm. but you could still be quite un, you know unwell or not be happy i guess yeah well it, it can be mean that there there are fewer symptoms um the person could have still have symptoms in place they could still feel the eating disorder there but they're able to not act on them or they could still have symptoms that they're acting on but they're still in recovery mm. hmm. are there any problems associated with um a biomedical perspective mm. Yeah, there, there are quite a few. So it reduces people to their symptoms and their ability to reduce them, um, basically. Um, so overall, um, treatment success is measured by the treatment's ability to reduce their symptoms and reduce relapse and mortality. And while this is largely laudable, the studies um, used sometimes leave out patient experience and can be further stigmatizing. So for example, my background research so far has found that outcome studies, so the ones that look at how well treatment is doing, um, how or how well treatment has worked, um, it focuses, they have found that um, these studies focus on factors relating to the patients only, such as when they were first diagnosed with an eating disorder, any other diagnoses they have, what were their, what was their discharge weight, um, and all these are being related to whether or not treatment worked and why it didn't work. And these all leave out the personal experience of treatment, um, as well as the experience of the people delivering the treatment. And then another reason why these don't work aren't so, um, some one of the other problems is that they depend on evidence-based practice, which is practice based on the best research available and combined with clinical evidence. And evidence-based practices um, are developed using studies where outliers are excluded in order to develop a standardized norm. So that is basically saying this is what works for the majority of the population. So while a certain practice or approach may work for the majority of the population, it doesn't allow for intersectional presentations found in eating disorders. So that's like LGBT presentations, people of color, indigenous, called, um, or even complex presentations. Mm. And these presentations are then left to receive inadequate treatment or to seek treatment from multiple sources, which is costly, burdensome, or risky, or to just not seek treatment at all, which is even more risky. Mm -hmm. You spoke before about um, discharge weight, and I know that with eating disorders, mm -hmm. the amount of kilograms that someone weighs is a huge uh, focus. Um, I guess my question is, can focusing too much on body weight detract from true measures of progress, especially considering, the, considering that not everyone who has an eating disorder is uh, underweight? So especially with people um, with perhaps like binge eating disorder, I know that yep. um, they may be perhaps a bit overweight. Um, yep. So is there an issue with, yeah. with that? Yeah, so focusing on weight itself as a measure of treatment progress is just basically an example of um, symptom reduction or symptom cessation. Um, and so without providing context for this measurement, I can imagine it would lead to an increased focus on weight and body shape concern, um, which is basically at the core of eating disorder 
uh, difficulties. But some treatment protocols do use it as a way to um, teach people how to manage that difficulty, such as CBTE, for example. However, um, I think that if we're working with that person's thoughts and trying to help their thoughts about weight, um, we need to actually address those thoughts. Mm -hmm. So in a way, we shouldn't necessarily be focusing on the action of weighing. We should be focusing on the thoughts about weight. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Kipala, could you quickly give us a brief overview of um, how much data is available on the efficacy of the different treatment approaches available? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, so, like, that's something that they're always doing. Basically, you can find it. They're, they're often reviewing, um, comparing to two different kinds of treatment. And then you can find meta-analyses where they compile the different reviews of, like, two different kinds of treatments or reviews of different kinds of treatment and then review the data on all the different kinds of treatment. Um, and you, what you want is the meta-analyses. Um, and then really some of the best places to look are in those meta-analyses um, or you can look at things from like the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence which is NICE from the UK or the American Psychological Association or the Australian Psychological Society um, who all have information on the evaluation of treatment approaches but again efficacy data always depends on going to the norm so outliers are left out and whether or not those efficacy um, studies work for intersectional populations is questionable. Mm -hmm. So from what I understand is you'll soon, be you'll soon be conducting your own research into eating disorders. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at the experiences of treatment and recovery among people in eating disorders uh, recovery. And I'm interested in why so many people relapse and what contributes to this relapse, but also what contributes to their positive treatment outcomes. So what has impacted their treatment and recovery negatively and positively. Um, I'm interested in looking at the treatment itself. So when we have a purely biological disorder, such as a flu or infection that requires an antibiotic, when one line of treatment repeatedly doesn't work, researchers will examine why it doesn't work and will try to improve on or find something better. They won't ask the patients why their weight wasn't high enough or, find, or why they didn't come into the hospital or anything like that. Um, instead, they will try to look at why the treatment didn't work. I want to have a look at why our treatments aren't working. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to do a series of qualitative um, studies in two phases, one an online focus group and then a second a series of face-to-face -face interviews kind of discussing these themes. Okay. Um, Capella, with the online focus groups, um, is there, I guess, um, what's the value in, I guess, using the internet as a research tool in this, mm. in this study? Um, so online focus groups are useful because they allow people to, um, they create a very safe and secure environment where participants can be anonymous and can talk about confronting topics without feeling awkward. And people tend to feel more comfortable online and, and express facets of themselves that they would usually, um, that would be really difficult in groups. Um, it helps people to 
to bring together people from distances and for eating disorders populations who tend to be quite tech savvy um, because they might have had experience with the pro-ana and the pro-mia stuff online. These, it's a very easy transition. So just for our listeners at home, mm. um, is there still time for people to get involved in the research? There definitely is. Um, so I'd like to recruit for the one-on-one interviews, um, which won't be held until March or April. I'd just like to get the ball rolling now because it can take some time to find people. So I'm pretty much finished recruitment for the online focus group, which is going to be held very soon. So I'm not taking participants. Um, so all you'll have to do is send me an email, which I believe we can post the information online. Yeah, if anyone's got a pen, do you want to read out yep. your um, email address for our listeners, Capella? Yep, it's uh, C-A-P-E-L-L-A dot M-E-U-R-E-R at monash dot E-D-U dot A-U. And um, if you just send me an email, I'll keep you on file and you can contact me when I start the survey. So it'll be very short. Um, it'll be 15 minutes, and but it needs to be completed so close to the time of the interview for accuracy's sake, and then we'll interview. Wonderful. Um, so if any of our listeners are interested, please get in contact uh, with Capella, and we will include Capella's details uh, on our podcast. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Um, you've been listening to Brainwaves on 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen to podcasts of our show on the 3CR website, and at brainwaves.org.au. Next week on the show, we're chatting with Sally Watkins, the developer of the Wellbeing Navigator app. Thank you so much, Capella, for coming on the show. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Stay tuned for Renegade Economists. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.